Everybody Googles everything, especially potential customers or employers, and a business or personal online reputation can make or break you. If negative search results or reviews are impacting you, Webamax is here to help. Our proven process restores your online reputation quickly and effectively, and it matters. Don't let negative results control your narrative. Visit GoWebamax.com and fill out a brief confidential form to see how we can help. Remember, if you aren't paying attention to your online reputation, someone else is. GoWebamax.com. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. It's time for Cover 2 Broncos. Just a couple dudes breaking down scheme, film, and the numbers. Now, your hosts, Joe Rowles and Jeff Essery. Welcome back to another episode of Cover 2 Broncos. I'm Jeff Essery. And I'm Joe Rowles. Thanks so much for listening. And just a quick reminder, if you have any questions about the Broncos, be sure to let us know at Cover 2 Broncos or at Jeffrey Essery or at Joe Rowe underscore NFL on Twitter. And thanks so much for tuning in with us this week. We were hitting... Um, Really more of a kind of a highlight reel, I guess, today, Joe. It's a little bit different than some of our uh, previous deep dives, but what's on everybody's mind is training camp finally opening up. Um, you know, everything's been pushed back and all the changes with COVID, but players are finally hitting the field and they put the pads on today. We're, we're recording this on Monday and that's when the, it was the first padded practice. So we're going to kind of dig in and talk through all the camp happenings. Jake Butt is the story that I've heard for three days. So we have to start with that. Um, I am definitely a Butt guy. I want Jake Butt to succeed. I want him to recover from all the ACL injuries and make the Broncos. How does he do it, Jeff? I think you've – I heard you actually on Broncos Country Tonight, which quick aside before we get into that, if you're – Make sure you're following Ryan Edwards, Benjamin Albright. Those guys put out Definitely. great stuff. They're on um, they're on the ground at training camp with COVID and all the restrictions. The training camps are not as open as they have been. 
access to fans, particularly if you're not, you know, there on the ground is just little clips here and there you get from Twitter. And so those guys have a really good perspective from being there at the, at the games, but you were on their show on Friday mm-hmm. and I heard you talking about the kind of the conundrum with Jake, Butt, and, and really it's the conundrum within the tight end room is that, you know, Noah Fant's not going anywhere. Yep. They just brought in Nick Vanette. So you assume he's not going anywhere. They paid him pretty good money at least for, you know, the, the level of tight end that he is. And then they just drafted Okwebunam. And so really you've got a fourth tight end slot if they if you think they're going to carry four. And so it kind of goes with a toss-up between Andrew Beck, who played kind of split duties with Andy Janovich at the fullback position. And so he brings that versatility, whereas Jake Butt, to me, he's more of a no offense fill-in, potentially. He's less of an inline guy, and he's maybe a guy that you split out more, which maybe fits a little bit better with Pat Shermer's offense. But if you're carrying only four tight ends and you don't really have a heavy package guy besides Nick Vanette, I mean, Okawebom's more of a red zone, vertical threat kind of guy. He brings you a little bit in the blocking game, but he's not a guy that you're going to load up with either. Um, maybe you're seeing more six tackle stuff instead of additional tight ends. But I would think you would want a guy like Andrew Beck to give you that versatility. So I just don't see a way unless Denver keeps five tight ends and treats Andrew Beck as kind of just that hybrid fullback, you know, tight end role since they did let Janovich go. To me, that's the only way I see Jake Butt making the roster. Agreed. And I'm, I've been kind of, so I tend to be really critical of the overly positive stuff that comes out of camp. And I get a lot of blowback from a lot of people for that. It's not that I try to be super negative and I'm not trying to be contrarian. I just try and look at it. And maybe it's because I'm so obsessed with Madden. So I obsess over roster building anyway, but the Broncos are facing a numbers crunch there. There's no doubt about it. Pat Shermer tends to carry four tight ends, but the thing is with those three players being locks, and the fact is, Pat Shermer, even though he runs 11 personnel, three receiver sets, and 12 personnel with two tight ends a lot, he does tend to carry somebody who can play fullback. Unless Nick Vanette can play fullback, I don't know how you make Jake Butt fit the roster with only four tight ends. Uh, because I don't think Noah Fant's ever going to play tight end. He's not really that player. And I don't think you're put, putting Albert O there. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me either. So that's really what Andrew Beck stands out as. And honestly, I think Troy Fumagalli also stands out for his ability to play like an H-back role. So if Jake Butt's going to make the roster and there's only four tight ends, he has to do enough to look better than those two players doing that as well as tight end. The one thing that kind of opens the door is I asked uh, Eric Delala. He didn't ask me anything for Broncos Reddit today. And again, this is Monday. I asked... Uh, what the Broncos were doing in terms of fullback reps, because we haven't heard anything about it. I'm not at camp. I know you're not at camp. We're not, we're not hearing anything about that. So I really want to know because that's important for how the tight end battle is going to shape out. He didn't answer it. So it's kind of a mystery right now what's going to happen, but unless the Broncos kind of steal from another position group to get five tight ends on the roster, that's the problem Jake Butt's having. He, Ryan Koenigsberg has, has said that Jake Butt is looking like the best tight end at camp right now. So it might just create a situation where they almost have to keep him somehow. And if that's the situation, then to your point, you're stealing from another position potentially. Yep. 
And that becomes challenging given what we've got going on at wide receiver. So it's kind of this weird, it's almost the perfect storm working against Jake Butt right now. And again, I, I wish him nothing but the best and hope he does really well. Also, Drew Locke talked about it today in his press conference that nobody wants, like everybody on that team is invested in Jake Butt succeeding just because of how great a teammate he's been and all that he's battled through. And so we definitely want to see him make the roster and turn into really what Broncos fans hoped he would be when he was drafted. But with the receiver position as stacked as it is now with drafting two receivers, you've basically got your starting four with Tim Patrick. Um, Benjamin Albright's been talking about Tim Patrick's been pretty much running with the ones and the twos. And um, you obviously have Jerry Judy and KJ Hamler that aren't going anywhere. And that's probably your top four with, Sutton, Patrick, Judy, and Hamler, and then Deshaun Hamilton potentially slotting in there. So you've got the fifth and sixth wide receiver slots that are kind of open. I don't see them carrying more than that either. And so you'd be either stealing from maybe a a receiver position or maybe you're taking from the running back position to keep Beck and you treat Beck as maybe more of a, a a running back or a high, you know, a, a fullback tight end hybrid, but then you're kind of raiding your backfield a little bit. And so I'm not sure where it'll shake out. Same. And it's, it's something I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in seeing kind of how it shapes out. And it's one of those things I wish there was a preseason just because this is the kind of thing that the preseason does help kind of figure out because how the Broncos would be using that player in the preseason would kind of give you a hint as to how they see him. So right now we're kind of in the wind there. And the other thing that's not – the one other player that I think could be interesting to watch, but again, we're not going to be able to see him in action, is Jeremy Cox, who's – he's listed as a running back, but the Broncos don't have a single player listed at fullback this year because, again, Pat Shermer doesn't normally carry a traditional fullback. But Jeremy Cox is the kind of size profile where he could feasibly be a running back slash backup to, like, Melvin Gordon in terms of he's a bigger back – but also he could potentially give you a couple snaps of fullback, kind of similar to like what Ruba Drones used to do. Um, Cause again, Pat Shermer's not going to use that fullback very often, but when he does, it's in like heavy sets where he wants to run the ball. So you do want a player who can do it. So it's interesting to watch again. I hope Jake Buck can make it. I would love to see it. Um, I'm somebody who suffered a pretty crazy knee injury. I can't imagine the work ethic you have to have to work back from three. Like I had to re I had to learn how to walk again. I can't imagine having to do that three times. Like, I, I don't think I'd be able to do it. I'd be in a wheelchair. So the fact that Jake Butt not only learned how to do all that, but also got back into NFL shape. Like, yeah, I want him to succeed. I want him to make the Broncos and be an all pro. Like, I want him to be a success story like uh, Thomas Davis is for formerly of the Panthers and the Chargers. Like, it'd be remarkable. But that said, I, I just, I don't know how it happens right now. So I'm kind of looking to see how that works out. Yeah, and for reference on Pat Shermer's usage of the multi-back sets, it's about 7% of the time, at least going on last year, which is about 24th in the NFL. So we're not talking about a lot, but it is a key grouping that it, it feels difficult to completely dismiss that portion of the roster or not have somebody that can play that role, particularly with like a Beck, because he provides you both and he can give you special teams versatility provide that H-back, fullback-ish role, and then he can also slot in at tight end. And so it feels like he just brings a lot more to the table right now in terms of the things that you would want. And and that's one of those things. Uh, somebody suggested to me today that maybe Pat Shermer 
because Jake Butt's so good, maybe Pat Shermer just doesn't keep that player at all. And maybe, I mean, I, I could see it happening. Like if, the, if the Broncos are loaded enough at receiver and tight end that you just feel comfortable going 11-12 more, you could do it. I'm going off of just Pat Shermer's like last three seasons of his roster construction. He's always had a player that's either a running back fullback hybrid or a tight end fullback hybrid. I went like back when we first, when the Broncos first hired Pat Shermer, I looked at this and you and I discussed it then because Janovich was kind of in the limelight at that point. He had a tight end fullback and or a running back fullback the entire time. So it's not something that I don't think he's going to overlook it. Yeah. And just for to kind of round out the discussion on who else is in the tight end room, Nick Vanette was given a two-year contract and with the bonus structure and the guaranteed money that he has right now, it he's guaranteed about $2.5 million currently um, next there's year. No, there's, there's no way they're cutting him right now. Yeah. Like he's uncuttable this year. Yeah. So next year it becomes a different story, but I mean, he'll clear, he'll, he'll hit the cap for about 2 million this year and he'll be about a $3.5 million cap hit next year, which I could easily see them getting out of before his um, base salary guarantees or gets locked in. But the, yeah, the dead cap hit because of his signing bonus, because he got, I think a 1.7, yeah, $1.7 million signing bonus. Um, that's a pretty sizable amount for a, for a guy, you know, a second tier tight end or your second string tight end. So he's not going anywhere. No offense for sure. Not going anywhere. And then Albert O, I mean, maybe if, Butt plays well enough to supplant, maybe that would be the only place that would happen. And you try to stash him. I'm, I'm still a little fuzzy on the practice squad the way the Same. practice squad rules um, are going to work out with COVID. I know it's expanded, but I think you still have to expose your players to waivers potentially. I could be wrong on that. I um, would want somebody to have to double check into that I, after. I know uh, predominantly Orange's Sarah Pettinger was asking that earlier, but I didn't see anybody ever answer because that's important. And, and the thing is with COVID, I don't know how willing other teams are going to be to bring in other teams' players. But again, everybody's testing pretty clean right now. So I would say I wouldn't risk Albert O to waivers. Like That seems kind of risky just because even, even if you don't think he's going to do anything this year, he's the kind of athletic profile that he's worth developing. He's yeah, the kind you of player see somebody you taking a shot on and so I wouldn't want to expose him at all. But that would be the only like – Kind oh, of wild I out there consideration, I think, is if you could stash him, if Jake just, is playing well enough in camp that you could start him. I just hope they don't do it because I, I, I don't see that going well. I see you losing Albert O if you do that is the only thing. Yeah. I think that the, you're right. Albert O, honestly, if Albert O plays 20% of snaps this year, that's exceptional. Like, I think yeah. right? for yeah. considering how loaded the tight end room is. Again, barring injury, that's obviously always a thing. But barring injury, the tight end room is loaded enough that Albert O is probably not going to contribute much this year anyway. He's probably a special teamer and role player who comes on the field for special situations where he they know they could use him. So like Jake Butt's probably going to give you more this year if you can get him on the roster. It's just Albert O's like next year, Albert O is the reason you can let Vanette go. And yeah. you're going to save a lot of money by doing that because that's what Albert O would step in and do. He'd be the, the Nick Vanette replacement. Yeah. So this would be a good pivot to receiver, though, since we just were talking about it a little bit. Jerry Judy is the truth, Jeff. 
and I, and I just I, keep going back to draft night when Jerry Judy was selected and how excited you were as we were, we were streaming it live. I don't know if some of the people are listening. If, if you saw that while we were um, doing the live stream of the draft, Joe was pumped when Jerry Judy was selected. He was my wide receiver one. As soon as Pat Shermer was hired, I looked at Pat Shermer's offense. His route running is exceptional. And I knew it was. And the fact that you have Kareem Jackson and coming out and basically saying he's the best route runner he's seen. And that Drew Locke actually said something to the same effect today. And I, I really like the way Drew Locke said it because he was trying to kind of, he was trying to be nice about it, but he also really kind of, so he, I'm just going to read it. We'll say Jerry is pretty good. We'll put it that way. I'm not putting anything out there and establishing expectations for that young man to hold up because I know if someone would have said that I was the best thrower they've ever seen last year, I would have gone into games with a little bit of added pressure. So, so Drew basically said, I'm not saying he's the best route runner I've ever seen. But he kind of did. <laughs> yeah. And I, for I was listening to that Locke interview live, and I just continue to be impressed with Drew Locke and the way that he handles himself and carries himself around his teammates, just to, to be that considerate about his teammates. So the question, you know, it came up as a follow-up to the Kareem Jackson thing um, of getting, you know, trying to get Locke to essentially echo what Jackson said of, hey, is, is he the best that you've ever seen coming out? And for Locke to defer on that and say, look, I don't want to put added pressure on him or, or speak out of turn or anything about, you know, adding any type of expectations on the young man after just a couple practices is pretty mature of Locke. But to your point, the way he framed it, he's he's he still pretty no. darn good. Yeah, exactly. And from all the reports that we've seen from camp is Jerry Judy's looking really, really good out there. And it it goes to what, you know, it's not one of those where I think everybody at this point is getting to say, told you so, just because everybody kind of knew, like everyone was excited. It, there wasn't really any doubters of Jerry Judy coming out when he was drafted by Denver. Everybody was expected this, I think, that he would come in and hit the ground running because he was the most pro-ready receiver coming out of the draft this year. Yeah. And it's everything I've seen over the offseason, I'm sure you and I have talked about it before, but watching his work ethic and watching – and again, highlight tapes are one thing, but just – Everything I've read, everything I've seen, everything like I'm not at all surprised. I'm very excited. Jerry Judy is quickly becoming one of my favorite players on the Broncos. I am like over the moon that Denver has him. I can't wait to see him in action. I wish there was a preseason for that because I want to see him catch passes. But it's it's coming and it's gonna be fun. And that's a good, um, I think, segue to a conversation I was having on Twitter tonight. Um really I think the and I don't know that I've necessarily heard this through from people in Broncos country, but I just wanted to put it out there to kind of set the expectation for folks, but that there's enough room in Shermer's offense right now. And I think, I, I mean, I made a little bit of this case and um, it was, it was one of my worries of like, if you draft a couple receivers early on in the draft, are you going to have enough targets to go around and digging into the numbers? It really kind of plays out that, Pat Shermer's offense is at least going over the last three years. He's had nearly a hundred targets. He's carried two wide receivers to a hundred targets in two of the last three years. And last year he had um, some injuries. So he had three receivers with 80 targets. And you compare that to Denver's target share last year. And it was Cortland Sutton with like 124, And then Deshaun Hamilton had 50. And so, just the disparity, one, just in overall passing and the amount of targets being distributed, but the fact that Pat Shermer's offense can carry essentially 
two wide receivers, a wide receiver one and a wide receiver two with nearly 90 to 100 plus targets between or each, it bodes really well for Jerry Judy this year. And one thing about that that I'm really excited for, uh, it's kind of two things. First, Shermer passes more, which is good. It, like you and I have talked about this before. Passing is more efficient than running in today's NFL. So when I see people talking about how to get Melvin Gordon and Philip Lindsay a lot of carries, I cringe a little because I don't want to force feed them the ball if it's easier to move the ball through the air. If Drew Locke is able to pass the ball, pass the ball. Like Those guys are there to ice the game when you're winning and to punish defenses for selling out against the pass. And that's I honestly believe that, and that's not a knock on running backs, but just you you win by passing in today's NFL. Pat Shermer throws the ball more than Rich Gangarello did, so that's a good thing. The second part of it is Pat Shermer's target distribution. He doesn't, at least based on what we saw from Rich Gangarello's offense last year, and part of that's Joe Flacco, the ball isn't going to be going to the running backs in the passing game as often. And I think that's a good thing because running back targets tend to not be as valuable as receiver targets. The depth isn't as far downfield. And because of it, you can't do as much with those targets. The fact that the receivers are going to get the ball more often this year is going to be very good for the Broncos offense as a whole. Yeah. And I think in, I would balance that with they'll still be involved. Um, oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. I don't so, mean it like that at all. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I, I know you didn't. Um, but so just like looking at, and I think it's tough because the Giants skew things a little bit like Shermer's time with the Giants because they had just drafted Barkley. Saquon Barkley and Saquon Barkley was number four overall. And so it was, it was force feed and he was one of their best offensive weapons out there, particularly when Odell went down uh, or when he was traded out. So, um, and I think Odell was hurt in 2018 a little bit too. And so Saquon and Barkley, Saquon Barkley had, I think 121 targets in the in 2018 in his rookie year and so they were just ridiculously force feeding him the ball so it skews things a little bit but if you go back to minnesota where they had Jarek mckinnon and latavius murray and murray was more of a melvin gordon type guy where he's not um i mean depending on how you look at it maybe he was your philip Lindsay, where he wasn't catching as many out of the backfield um but Latavius Murray was more of the the running between the tackles guy, and McKinnon was the third down pass catching back, and he caught or he caught fifty balls and had sixty eight um, sixty eight targets. But he was fourth on the team in targets. So you had Adam Thielen, Stefan Diggs, and Kyle Rudolph all with eighty plus targets, and then you had Jarek McKinnon, you know, leading the pack. And so I would expect a distribution similar to that. Um, based on who Denver has right now. So I would expect Noah Fant to get around 50, 60-ish targets. That's around what Evan Ingram got. And I would expect Jerry Judy and Cortland Sutton to split somewhere between 90 to 100 targets. And then mm -hmm. the running backs, the distribution between Gordon and Lindsey, that'll be our next topic of conversation as we move on to, to that. But I think um, you'll probably see 50s-ish and to your point, if they're getting more than that, I'm, I'm hoping it's because of taking advantage of the defense and being able to exploit particular matchups or something like that, as opposed to force feeding the running backs, because there's so much better targets currently on the team than the running backs right now. And again, that's, that's not even necessarily a knock on Phil Lindsay, Melvin Gordon, or even Rice Freeman, so much as just from a schematic standpoint, it's really hard to get the running back, the ball downfield in the passing game consistently in a way that's actually going to maximize what you're trying to do. And that's one of the things that was different about Saquon Barkley with Pat Shermer even, 
is he would run a little bit of some vertical stuff. And like at that point, yeah, like get Saquon Barkley the ball. But Shermer's dump off game and stuff like that, Melvin Gordon and Phil Lindsay can both definitely do it. But it's not a priority of the offense to throw them the ball in the flat like it was last year. Uh, Royce Freeman and Phil Lindsay combined for like 90 targets last year, right? 98 targets last year. That's wow. absurd. That's that's way too many. And and again, that's and I'm not trying to hate on either of them, but you don't you you run you throw the ball to the running back in the flat because it's better than a sack and it's better than an incompletion. You don't throw him the ball in the flat just to throw him the ball in the flat. Well, particularly when you compare the the type of to your point the type of running back involved in the passing game that they were doing, the screen game wasn't working very well. Scangarello's screen game is is not nearly as polished as what we've seen from Pat Shermer over the last couple of years. So that'll be an upgrade. And then Scangarello really wasn't getting the running backs involved too deep down the field. So yeah, that's 98 targets that you want to cut that in half, ideally, if you and distribute it to a lot more efficient targets. And that's a function too of Denver not having a clear number two wide receiver once Emmanuel Sanders left yeah. town. And so I think ideally you would shift those and distribute them among Noah Fant, Jerry Judy, and potentially KJ Hamler. I remember last year during camp, you and I both were really excited about how Rich Kangarel was talking about how easy it was to use a running back, motion them out into space, and they get a mismatch. And there were times he did it. The problem with that was, especially now, now that Denver has KJ Hamler, Jerry Judy, Tim Patrick, Deshaun Hamilton, Carl Sutton, if you're going to motion that running back out into space, why not put somebody out there who's actually really good at route running, who specializes in getting open against those players? The mismatch factor is worth something, but it's not so valuable that it's not better to probably put somebody on the field who's actually a really good receiver. Yeah, and I think some of it was just a function of like Denver got, was limited last year a little bit because with Theo Riddick going down, when we saw what yeah. they probably expected to do with Theo Riddick a little bit in the preseason, and then he went down and was out for the season. And so their kind of third down pass catching back really went away and you didn't have much out of Royce Freeman and Philip Lindsay, even though I think Philip Lindsay is a very electric and amazingly talented player. He's just not particularly last year is just not the level of receiver that you, you want from a guy that's hauling in. 90 targets or and, even 50 targets. And, and to that point, uh, I've seen a lot of talk about how he, his wrist injury was a big factor in him dropping passes last year and how he's like worked to improve on it. And I hope, I hope so. And I, and I do think that he hit the wrist injury could have made a big difference. He would know better than me. The, the things I'm looking for to see from Philip Lindsay as a receiver this year is how well he catches outside of his frame, because that seemed to be one of the things he was struggling with last season is if the ball was not like between his shoulders and his thigh pads. So if it was basically outside of his frame, he had to reach for it in any way. It, it, that's where he seemed to have the most trouble. He would either a have more trouble catching the ball or he had more time where he had to catch it, then brace for it. And it gave the defense more time to react to him getting the ball. So if he's improved at that. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Anatomy of an ad. 
subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Look out, because that's, if he can turn into a runner quicker, and at that point, he's an electric player in the open field. That, that's great. Yeah, and so, and, and I think that may be, as we, it's because we kind of transition into the running backs, that may be the place that Philip Lindsay, I mean, if, if he wants to continue to, and I hate to say this because I, I love what he's brought to this team, but if he wants to continue to stay on the team past this year or really, you know, make that big money that he, he yeah. deserves, honestly, based on his play the last year and a half or the last two years is um, he's going to have to develop that piece of his game because that's the missing piece in Denver's offense right now is Melvin Gordon's not that much of that player. He's more of your, I mean, he's your short yardage guy. And he's your third down blocking guy. Like he, he brings that veteran presence to the um, table. And you pointed it out, looking at Pat Shermer's blocking schemes of just how much he keeps the running back in to block on passes. And some of that is a function because he is spreading it out. And so you don't have as much tight end chip help. You're going to leave your running back in to help out. And so you want a guy with like a veteran presence and that can bring that. And, and Melvin Gordon's a, a really good blocker. So I think the the thing that Denver is missing is that third down or even just that that pass catching running back that you can split out or really get involved in the passing game. And Philip Lizzie, I think, has that potential to turn into that. And you look at the contracts that Christian McCaffrey just made, um, and that's where the money's going. If you're going to be a running back in today's league, you have to develop that portion of your game. And so for his sake and for Denver's sake, I hope Philip Lindsay turns into, I'm not saying turns into Christian McCaffrey, but turns into that style of player that can really be versatile in that way. And the thing with Philip Lindsay, and this is where the argument for Melvin Gordon is because he caught a lot of passes. He's a, an exceptional receiver. A lot of Melvin Gordon's receptions are the kind of passes you and I were just talking about where they're, they're dump off and outlet passes. And again, that's to his credit, he's catching them and he's doing something with them. But what we what what Phil Lindsay needs to be able to do is he needs to be a real receiver out of the backfield, and that's what Christian McCaffrey and like an Alvin Kamara like that's what those type of players can do that add value to the offense as a running back in the passing game. Uh, the Broncos will ask Melvin Gordon to probably be the blocking back when they're going to try and keep the back in for whatever reason. And I think Phil Lindsay is kind of an underrated pass blocker uh, personally. But I do think that the Broncos coaching staff trust Melvin Gordon as a blocker more. And I understand why, because he's bigger and he's going to be able to hold up against a defensive tackle or blitzing linebacker and edge rusher a little bit better. Uh, but the thing is, Melvin Gordon's not a dynamic uh, route runner in the way that Phil Lindsay could potentially become. So hopefully he can do that. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a really interesting and, and that's been the biggest conversation throughout camp is they've been asking, you know, the coaches, they've been asking both the players, like what the what the timeshare is going to look like. And right now, at least from what we're hearing from camp is that it's pretty much an even split of who's getting what reps. And I think it'll continue to be that mainly because neither like each of them brings something that the other doesn't have. And it's not necessarily your basic split roles. And so like I mentioned Latavius Murray and um, Jarrett McKinnon, 
they had very clear roles. And so that was 2017 with the Vikings. They had very clear roles. Derek McKinnon was your shotgun guy and he was your third down back. And Latavius Murray was rarely on the field in no huddle, two minute offense, shotgun, um, any of that type of stuff. And Latavius Murray was your under center. You're pounded in between the tackles, your goal line guy. And it's interesting because, so I just tweeted out a stat. Um, and this is one that you found, I, I believe, Joe, it was um, success rate for running backs across last year. And on the chart, they break down under center versus shotgun. And mm-hmm. Philip Lindsay, at least last year, was his success rate was much lower from shotgun and he was a much more successful runner under center. And that plays out when you watch the tape, he is, he's so good under center. And so it's interesting because he's that small scat back type guy who you expect to be the Jarrett McKinnon type player, but he actually runs better between the tackles and Melvin Gordon on the flip side, everybody points to his short yardage and his goal line carries and all of that. And and you and I have talked about this a bunch. Melvin Gordon's stats are a function of volume and not necessarily a function of skill. And that's not taking anything away from Melvin Gordon because he's a great player, but it's a function of volume, particularly all the short yardage stuff he does. So it's this weird conundrum where neither of them fit perfectly into those two roles that you expect from your backs of your, your early down bruiser back, because you want Melvin Gordon in on the shotgun runs because his success rate has been better in shotgun, but he's not necessarily a guy that you're going to split out wide and run a bunch of path routes. And so it's kind of this weird combo. Well, and that's exactly why for all the talk about getting them on the field together, and it's kind of started to crop back up again. I already wrote a gift horse about, like I explored this. I hope Pat Shermer does not get Melvin Gordon and Phil Lindsay on the field together very often, if at all. Uh, I just, you look back over the NFL over the last couple of years, it's just, it doesn't work. 20 personnel sets are rarely effective unless you have really special running backs who are able to complement each other. And the fact that neither Phil Lindsay or Melvin Gordon are such an accomplished receiver as of right now, that they would be able to use one as a receiver, as a mismatch in the passing game. And neither of them is the kind of run blocker. So you're losing what you would have by either having a receiver on the field or a tight end on the field without really getting much benefit unless you're running a lot of misdirection. But the thing is, Drew Locke is not Lamar Jackson. You're not going to be using the two running backs to do option stuff. So... If Denver's going to use a lot of 20 personnel sets this year, I'm really curious to see how they can actually make it work. Because to me, it just seems like a like kind of a shiny toy, but it's not really going to help the offense. Yeah, I agree. And I think it does go back to the fact that both of those guys have very clear-cut roles. I mean, from a – or sorry, clear-cut like strengths and weaknesses. And they don't overlap a ton. And so mm-hmm. – you're not going to want to put Philip Lindsay on the field along, you know, next to Drew Locke and Melvin Gordon in the shotgun if Philip Lindsay's shotgun success rate is is not typically that high. And some of that's the function of the offense, right? But um, in general, I do think you're sacrificing something that Lindsay doesn't do as well just for, to your point, maybe the gadgetiness of it, if that's even, that's not a word. But thing, I don't think it brings you that much. Um, that you couldn't get from some other type of alignment, even of a, I mean, we saw them bring Deshaun Hamilton into the backfield last year. Heck put KJ Hamler back there and have him running jet motion from the slot or something, or, you know, motion in the backfield there next to Melvin Gordon, as opposed to bring Philip Lindsay onto the field as more of kind of a, just a, a trick player to deceive the defense. 
if you're going to bring both Melvin Gordon and Phil Lindsay on the field, I want to hear the argument for why, like you said, why KJ Hamler wouldn't be better suited for one of those two spots or Andrew Beck or Big Butt or a tight end. Basically, there, there's so many players that can do the things that you would probably be asking that second back to do better. So it just doesn't make sense to me, except to kind of placate fans who are worried that Philip Lindsay's not going to get the ball enough. Um, and I understand it because, again, Mike Kliss, uh, a couple of days ago, Mike Kliss mentioned on, I believe, the fan – that he thinks Phil Blinsey is going to see about seven or eight carries this year. If that happens, that would be half of what Phil Blinsey saw last year. And most fans were upset at how few carries Phil Blinsey was getting last year. So I can understand why you would want Lindsey to get on the field with Gordon if the alternative is him not getting the ball at all. But my whole thing is, if you want the Broncos offense to be at its best, two backs on the field together is probably not the way to do it. Yeah, and I, and I don't know that I would agree with that particular split I think you can support two running backs and maybe just not the the volume that you would expect from a guy like Melvin Gordon maybe he's the guy that takes the hit on the volume because he has typically been a 20 plus carry guy but I mean you look at what Philip Lindsay and Royce Freeman did last year to your point they both split nine they had 98 targets in the passing game and so Lindsay had 48 Royce Freeman had 50 and then from a rushing attempt perspective, they split those. I'm pulling it up to make sure to check my numbers. Um, Philip Lindsay had 224, where Royce Freeman had 132. And so you had Philip Lindsay or you had Freeman getting a little bit more targets in the passing game and actually hauling in a little bit more of those, while Lindsay had more carries, about 100 more carries, about 90, um, looking at the specifics of the numbers. So, I mean, there's enough in there, I think, to support two backs it, to your point though, I, probably not at the volume that, but that fans want. And it's not at the volume that Gordon's contract would, um, would warrant if he's the one taking the hit. But if Philip Lindsay is the one producing, I'm fine with it. Cause you've already paid Melvin Gordon and, and you paid him for a very specific reason. And I think honestly, looking at those numbers that I tweeted out with the, um, Pat Shermer's offense running shotgun, 73% of the time and the Melvin Gordon's success rate in shotgun. I think honestly, Pat, Melvin Gordon was a Pat Shermer signing. And if it that makes, if, if that makes him more comfortable in the offense, if that makes him more comfortable putting Drew Locke back there with limited chip protection and keeping Melvin Gordon in there to block, um, I'm fine with it. And it, I'm okay. I'm not going to be watching Melvin Gordon snap count. Uh, I'm going to be watching more of Philip Lindsay's, hoping that he can get as many explosive plays as he got last year and maybe pick up some efficiency if you limit his carries to better situations, if that makes sense. I'm not necessarily worried about who gets the ball the most, so long as whoever's getting the ball is effective with it. I do think that Philip Lindsay is a good enough running back that he shouldn't... I don't think Philip Lindsay's carries should shrink down to single digits, but that said... If, if they're having more success with Gordon under sh uh, in the shotgun, for how much Pat Shermer is going to probably be in the gun and how good Drew Locke looks in the gun, I understand it. Um, and if and the thing is, if Gordon's carries don't necessarily match up with his paycheck, the reason you can afford Melvin Gordon at the cap number you're paying him, and again, I'm not even arguing for or against it, but just the reality is Melvin Gordon's making the money he's making in part because Drew Locke's on a rookie contract, Colton Sutton's on a rookie contract, Bradley Chubb's on a rookie contract. You have the money to spend it somewhere. So the fact that Melvin Gordon's making that money, it's already there. It's just, if you if you ignore what his cap number looks like and just pretend it was like Drew Locke's contract, 
whoever the best running back is, they should be the one getting the ball. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so on another note, since we kind of just really hammered those two, the center battle is probably something just to touch on really quickly. Austin Schlotman and Patrick Morris are repping with the ones. Lloyd Cushenberry, out of all the reports I've seen, has not gone reps with the first team yet. Are you concerned? Is Lloyd Cushenberry behind? I don't think so. And I think it goes to, and I think you talked about this on the show on Friday on Broncos Country Tonight a little bit, is one, we're, we're only a couple practices in. Um, but all the rookies, I mean, they haven't had a lot of time on the field. And so, I mean, I made this comparison on the, I was on a, a radio show this morning talking and, and made the comparison that this time last year, so the, we're, we're what, August 17th when we're recording this, we were two weeks into the preseason this time last year and the players just put the pads on for the first time and they're, they're both, they're still playing in September. They're playing I think September 10th is the first game. I should know this right off the top of my uh, head. 14th, actually. Okay. I, I'm, I'm not counting or anything, but yeah, it was the 14th. <laughs> so September, I mean, early September, football's being played. And, you know, I mean, it's something we've kind of, everybody's heard so much about because of all the changes with COVID. But I do think it is a big deal for the rookies who just aren't getting as much time on the field. And so I think it makes sense to ease them into it particularly at a position like center where you have the opportunity to see what other guys have um, and make Lloyd Cushenberry earn it. I'm okay with that. I think he totally will. Um, And so like I'm more the opinion, particularly with with all of these. And this is when we talk about the, what to watch for really is, is who's running with the ones in a week or so in two weeks, come back to me. And if, if Cushenberry is not taking the starting reps, then, then I'm concerned about, him starting the season because at that point you're wanting him to get locked in and start getting the snaps in him and drew Locke developing chemistry and consistency. The other, and there's two parts with Cushionberry that I'm thinking about that I'm kind of wondering about normally center tends to be the positions making all the line calls. If Cushionberry's starting, I don't know if that's necessarily true uh, because again, he's a rookie and he's on like this abbreviated kind of preseason getting ramped up for the season. So that may very well be part of the reason why they're not repping him with the ones because if he's not necessarily ready to call the protections and the slides and like the adjustments, it might make more sense for Slotman or Morris to start week one. And that doesn't necessarily mean Cushenberry's behind or anything. It's just the reality that we're facing with COVID. Because the other thing is, you don't want your starting center to not be able to make the calls and Drew Locke to get killed. Yeah, and I think uh, I do think that Cushenberry, if anybody is is set up well to to jump in and do that, I do think Cushenberry would be a guy that is based on what he did at LSU. Um, and I know I've, t- I've talked about this a couple times when I've brought up Cushenberry, but I, I got the chance to talk with him at the senior bowl and he was talking about the relationship that he and Joe Burrow had and how they both, like he was essentially the guy on the offensive line, quarterbacking that offensive line and calling out the protections, um, in conjunction with Joe Burrow. And so, um, and then pair that with Dalton Reisner talking about, how impressed he was that Cushenberry has been picking up the offense fast. I'm hoping that we see Cushenberry kind of jump into that starting role over the next week or two and be set to really be the guy on the offensive line and, and kind of quarterback that unit there. I am very optimistic, uh, but I just, it's one of those things. If, if he's not starting week one, I'm not panicked. I don't think he's a bust. Fangio might just be cautious. Again, this is the same coach who sat Alexander Johnson for four games. Cause he didn't know if he was ready. So if he sits Lloyd Cushenberry for a couple games, as he kind of gets his feet wet, like, he probably has his reasons. Yeah. 
let's kind of round out the conversation. I know you've got a lot of um, feelings about the the lack of information we're getting at cornerback, or at least just like you know, I think everybody's wanting to know more from a cornerback perspective. But then maybe let's wrap it up with what we should be looking for over the next couple of weeks as we continue to see um, news and stuff trickle out from camp. I want to. I just saw that Devonte Bosme is repping essentially at cornerback three. Big Fangio after practice today was also mentioning the Isaac Adam and Devontae Harris. And like the competition is still definitely wide open between all those other young veterans that are kind of battling for the cornerback three. And again, this is behind AJ Boye and behind Bryce Callahan. So I'm, I'm very interested to see who kind of asserts themselves as that player, because ideally Bryce Callahan can play out on the bond boundary in base personnel, which is like the three, four with two corners but then be able to slide inside and play the nickel. Uh, but you need another cornerback. In today's NFL, you're going to need three corners, probably more in this season. So I'm very curious to see what happens. I think Devontae Bosby is the best of that group, at, at least in terms of what we saw last year. His best game was better than anybody else's of that crew by far. Uh, his Packer game was really good. If you if you want to go back and feel really encouraged about the Broncos cornerback group, I do – think you should go watch Devontae Bosby's game against Aaron Rodgers and the Packers. It was one of the better games I saw last year. Yeah, I agree. And I, I do like the fact that he's playing that outside. He's, he's almost playing that Bradley Roby role a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. It seems like that's a good fit for him because Callahan was getting reps on the outside in the previous camp. And I think he has been a little bit this year too. And so if he's the guy that um, – is playing outside in base and then kicking inside into the nickel, like you mentioned, um, letting Bosby jump into the outside role, I, I think is a good kind of starting place for Devontae Bosby because it limits his snap count a little bit and also puts him in a role that um, I think he's best suited for on the outside. Agreed. But I do think it'll be interesting um, to continue to see how they're repping the the cornerbacks and and how they're looking from camp. I believe it was was it Bosby that got a pick in in camp on the second day. I think he did. Um, and then I want to I want to say yes, but I also don't pay a lot of attention to who's getting picks this early in camp. Normally, I saw a clip um, from it. I'm pretty sure it was Devonte Bosby that jumped a route from Judy. I think it was Jeff Jeff, Jeff Driscoll that was throwing it. Um, nice. And then we've heard from Benjamin Albright that Michael O.J. Mudia is getting work exclusively at corner. Um, Elijah Holder is at safety. And so that's kind of the distribution currently in the secondary. There's been talk that O.J. Mudia could potentially play safety if they wanted him to or, like, you know, has the skills to. But um, it sounds like they're working him exclusively at corner, at least currently. And it makes sense. That's honestly, that's the position position group with more questions right now. So Ojemudier's path to playing time is probably shorter there than anywhere else. Um, Justin Simmons and Kareem Jackson, if they're healthier, definitely going to log the vast, vast majority of all the safety snaps this year. So, Yeah, and I think it'll be interesting, like I mentioned, to me the, the kind of bow I would put on this is that it's still very early. And so a lot of the stuff, like it, it's good to hear the story of like, you know, Jake Budd is coming out and looking strong. Uh, it was nice to hear that Bradley Chubb is looking good cutting. He's got his knee brace on, but um, from what I've heard from guys like Brandon Cristal and, and stuff who saw him um, said, he's looking good out there. That that's the kind of stuff that you want to see early on. 
And then in a week or two is really when you're going to get a feel, I think, for how the rosters are starting to come together a little bit, particularly who's slotting in at some of these battle positions, who's getting more reps at running back, what's the tight end room going to shake out to look like, and that center position as well. And and I think, honestly, once DeMar Dotson gets ramped up, we haven't talked tackle a lot, but um, who gets more reps between Elijah Wilkinson and DeMar Dotson at that right tackle position too. But I think that'll come in the next week or two as things start to really um, solidify a little bit more. Can't wait.